Welcome to Cover to Cover, a podcast featuring musical conversations about an album or song which has changed and enhanced someone's life. I am your host, songwriter Matt Tarka. Thanks for joining us today. We humans connect with the presence of music in our own unique way. As an artist, a concert goer, through our headphones or as something that simply lives in our everyday background. Our guest today is one Jared Saltiel. Jared is a singer-songwriter and multi-instrumentalist based in Brooklyn, New York. Always a clever lyricist and imaginative storyteller, Saltiel's rich orchestrations elevate his musical narratives with cinematic overtones. As lead singer and songwriter of Ann Arbor, Michigan pop rock band The Dirty Birds, he released his debut album, How the Cause Became the Cure, in 2009. After moving to Brooklyn, New York, he launched his solo career, releasing two interconnected full-length albums of lushly orchestrated, magical realist story songs, The Light Within in 2013 and Out of Clay in 2018. His follow-up, One More Revelation, was a return to more conventional songwriting and contemporary folk rock aesthetics. With his new EP, No Heroes, Saltiel channels the zeitgeist with emotional intelligence and evocative production. As a producer and arranger, he has worked with a variety of musicians, including Kay, Bell the Band, Cassidy Andrews, Lee Wright, and his brother, Jason Saltiel. And as the co-creator of satirical slasher comedy musical South by South Death, and the composer of Amina Henry's original play, Hunter, John, and Jane, his theatrical work has been covered in the New York Times, The Village Voice, and Time Out. For our conversation today, we are going to be discussing In the Wee Small Hours, which is the ninth studio album by the chairman of the board. Of course, we are referring to Frank Sinatra. In the Wee Small Hours was released on April 25th of 1955 by Capitol Records and produced by Voyle Gilman with arrangements by Nelson Riddle. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest to the program. Jared, it's great to have you. Thanks for uh, taking some time to be here today on Cover to Cover. How are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me, and thanks for dealing with all of my flakiness the past few months setting this up. Um, I'm really excited to be here, and I'm especially excited to talk about my uh, my hero, Frank Sinatra. Um, and it, the first thing that popped into my head just now was how you all you had to say about him after saying all of that stuff about me you just had to say the chairman of the board and it's like ah yes frank sinatra everything is right there everything you need to know what inspired you to choose this particular offering from this legendary artist yeah, so Frank Sinatra has always played a very important role in my life he was sort of my first big uh, musical romance, I would say, uh, especially when I was an adolescent. I became obsessed with his music when I was 10, 11, or 12, something like that. And for me, he always played this important role of sort of how I connect to my family because both sides of my family, both sets of grandparents and both of my parents, everybody was a big Sinatra fan. It was like the one thing that cohered everything and pulled everyone together. Um, despite the fact that they came from totally different worlds and totally different backgrounds and um, in certain ways had very little in common. And I, I, I think I was very struck by that as a kid. And it was, 
so Sinatra has always been like a big source of of joy in my life. Um, but it was only a little bit later that I started digging into his 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 albums as opposed to the you know the greatest hits I had, which were mostly kind of the big swing big band sound music that he made and then also the 60s kind of more wide-ranging pop music that he was making which was kind of jazz and kind of something else so i discovered uh this album in particular when i was about 19 years old and it became immediately sometimes i would say it's my favorite album but you know it depends on my mood um but you know when you asked me what i would want to talk about I thought about a lot of things. And then at some point I just thought, oh, no, there's only one thing. And it's completely obvious. It's the most obvious thing of all, which is in the wee small hours, Frank Sinatra, probably my, just my number one album in general. Friends, we are talking with the artist Jared Saltiel here on Cover to Cover with Matt Tarka, all things Frank Sinatra and all things related to his fifth offering in the wee small hours. Um, Jared, we're we're talking remotely right now, and I can kind of, you know, you, you've given us, you know, that proverbial window, you know, as we're living in the 21st century of kind of being able to, you know, kind of seeing, you know, one another's artistic spaces. And in the background right now, I see a piano right behind you, and you talk about what, you know, the kind of family bonds, you know, that were forged, you know, as a result of Frank Sinatra's music. Was the piano kind of a focal point in your living room, and you know, did you? Was it a gathering space in that regard? Did you have kind of maybe like a little parlor like room in, in a in a house or a home or um did, was more yep. time spent in front of a piano, I I guess where I'm going with this as opposed to say in front of a TV? Yeah, I mean, certainly we did both. Um, but the piano was in the family room, which was right next to the kitchen. And I would say that's that's an interesting thing for you to bring up and point out. Um it's actually, it is actually very evocative for me um, because all myself and both my brothers, we learned piano and we, you know, we took kind of, we took piano lessons and we learned jazz and classical from an early age. And my dad was never trained in piano, but he somehow just had an ear for it. And he would pick his way through jazz standards on the piano. And he used to, especially when I was a kid, he used to do this most nights um and so there were some songs that he would play that really for me hold like a very strong sentimental um place in my mind um and i you know and then i kind of took on this habit around the time i was like 11. i stopped taking piano lessons but by then i knew chords and i sort of could figure it out so we had all these little songbooks. so i kind of just I really was take took in the Great American Songbook through osmosis. Um, I was also playing jazz drums, um, so I was really steeped in in jazz in a certain sense throughout my childhood and teen years. Even though I wasn't well, I was pretty serious about it. But um, particularly the this the the part of jazz that's really like the standards, which is a lot of it is old Broadway show tunes. Um, plucked out of that context and you know nobody encapsulates that better than frank sinatra um so yeah and and i and i think i've as a as an artist and a songwriter myself um i've taken on a lot of 
the qualities of that time period of music, even though I have adapted them, you know, more or less for a contemporary sound. Um, so yeah, this stuff is really like in my bones in a profound way. I love that. Uh, friends, we're talking with Jared Saltiel on Cover to Cover with Matt Targa um, about his own artistic craft and also about the fifth offering from Frank Sinatra, which is in the wee small hours. Um, let's begin talking about Frank Sinatra even more here. Um, who is who, who are some of the, uh, you know, players or personnel that, you know, have helped kind of frame these songs in a studio with Frank? Yeah, so the most important figure... I can't remember the name of the producer of the album, but my sense from my understanding of of the history of his of this recording was that Sinatra kind of produced this album and this was a huge moment for him as an artist with creative control. Um and the main person that he worked with to make in the wee small hours was the arranger Nelson Riddle. And this was a pretty new partnership at the time. He had done a couple records, but um, all of this was happening at the beginning of Sinatra's time at Capitol Records in the mid fifties, which was it in a way that is really hard to appreciate now because of his omnipresence in our culture and the sort of grandiosity of his personality, um, which emerged throughout the 20th century. This was a very pivotal moment in his career because just a few years prior, he was completely finished. Again, it's hard for us to imagine or understand that, but he was, you know, prior to the mid 50s, Sinatra was a 40s heartthrob singer who was, you know, chased down the street by the Bobby Sockers. Bobby Sockers? Is that right? Um, but, you know, sort of his teen girl fans they would he was kind of like it was like the beatles um when they first showed up in america screaming teenage girls in a stadium that was what you know sinatra really was the first artist to kind of bring that sort of level of fanaticism um to pop music and then it just sort of died um and a lot of other things happened and so so the context of this album was that he had basically his career had fallen apart. His personal life had really ruined his reputation in the eyes of the American public because he was married to Nancy Sinatra, who was, you know, a very traditional wife and he had a family. So he was a family man. And then he had this very public affair with the actress Ava Gardner, who is like the just most absolute um uh how do i put it she is the ultimate representation in american culture of the femme fatale archetype there's nobody i feel like nobody really comes close especially if you think about the time period and how all the sort of currents of of popular culture sort of converged in the 50s where it was so traditional but there was so much happening that wasn't really acknowledged there was so much sex and drinking and and romance so many extramarital affairs etc and so sinatra had this very public affair with ava gardner and everyone was very disapproving of this and that combined with you know the fact that his fans grew up they were now young adults um there were certain 
other changes happening in sort of pop music trends all contributed to him just suddenly having no like clout and having no hits. He got dropped from his label. Um, he divorced his wife. He married Ava Gardner. And then that relationship was a total nightmare. And then he kind of on a whim, it seems, Capitol Records signed him, um, I think in maybe 53 or something like that. Uh, and nobody wanted to do it. But for some reason, one of the executives said, okay. And they set him up with Nelson Riddle, this arranger who was kind of new on the scene and had worked, I think, with Nat King Cole at this point, but I'm not sure. Um, and I think Sinatra wanted to work with an old arranger, Alex Stordahl, but um, instead, but eventually he agreed to work with Nelson Riddle because his songs with Stordahl were not working out. They weren't getting, they weren't doing very well. And so what came of that was this incredible legendary partnership between Sinatra and Nelson Riddle that characterized this time period of his career, which I think most sort of big Sinatra fans agree is the, is the heart and the, and the highest quality um, output that he ever had was like starting in the mid fifties into the sixties. Um, and Nelson Riddle was probably the main player of that time period, though, you know, this music required a lot of people to be made. Yeah. Critical juncture in Sinatra's career based on everything that you have so poignantly described. And from something that I had read, um, this potentially is the very first uh, concept record by any artist. Would that be, is, is that accurate? Um, I think it's, it's yeah. close to accurate. It, what's interesting is it's definitely not the first concept album because even Sinatra had released something that could qualify as a concept album before this. I think an important piece of context, I was just looking this up, um, is that LPs, long playing vinyl records, didn't exist until I think 1948. So prior to that, everybody was listening to singles. You'd have five minutes per side. And singles continued to, to in many ways, dominate pop music well into the 60s. And it wasn't really the Beatles, it wasn't really until the Beatles that kind of everybody adopted the, the album model, everybody in rock and pop music. So even at this time, Sinatra was pretty unique for leaning into the album format. It was mostly popular for classical music for obvious reasons. It's very long usually and jazz music because, you know, while there were certainly um, short songs performed by jazz combos, it, it was not really, it didn't really encapsulate the experience of watching live jazz, which had extended solos, etc. So, you know, you have artists like Miles Davis making kind of, making long playing records that were all sort of building on a theme or, or, or setting a mood. Um, but I think what Sinatra did that was quite unique at the time, and especially from the perch that he, that he sort of had at this moment, but had, especially after this moment, he took on this, or he, he adopted this practice of taking his albums really seriously and approaching them not just about setting a mood or having a certain kind of atmosphere or having a certain kind of sound, but really 
thinking about it conceptually and handpicking songs that 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 kind of come together to tell a story um although i i i, I it's not a story at with a beginning and an end per se it's more like they just fit together in a way that's kind of crazy considering they're all written by different people and they're all just kind of random standards and random songs from the great american songbook and from broadway musicals etc um so this you know i think when when you say concept album in 2021 people think are more likely to think of a rock opera right which was mm-hmm. which was more of a late 60s um invention i think tommy yeah yeah uh-huh. um so th- so this is it's not narrative in the sense that rock operas supposedly are are narrative as as somebody who creates something along those lines you know i've made i've made albums that kind of are like that they don't typically they don't make any sense that anybody can really follow but um so this is a concept album in the sense of all the songs are about being this forlorn lonely guy who's pining after a girl that you just can't have and each song is a slightly different take on that basic premise um and and what i find so fascinating is how many of these songs end up you know they they play with a lot of the same imagery sometimes in ways where it's like it's kind of like he has there are three different songs in the album that involve like an elaborate fantasy of a girl in a cloud of smoke or walking across the ceiling or something like that this this really kind of strange imagery and these are songs written by different people from different sources etc and and this was this was his major sort of contribution and his i i think he kind of emerged as like an auteur in this moment the way that a film director would where his creative vision finally had kind of space and resources to um come to fruition and he did something really amazing with that and that was largely what made him the figure that he is now in our minds friends we're chatting with jared saltiel about all things frank sinatra we're focusing on the wee small hours here on cover to cover with matt tarka and um jared this feels like a really natural segue to talk or select your very favorite tracks we could you know we could hand pick a couple based on your preferences or we can literally go track by track what would you prefer um i i would i'm gonna make sure that i have the track list in front of me which i now do um part of what's so interesting about this album for me and i think this is related to what we were just talking about this this advent of the concept album is the way that the songs all kind of almost blend together um partially because there's the continuity of the arranging by Nelson Riddle. There's a continuity of orchestration and then there's a continuity of, of theme. And so I always, even though this is one of the albums I've listened to the most in my life, it's often kind of difficult for me to remember what's even on it unless I really sit down and think about it or, or look at it because it's such a, it's such a mood from start to finish. You put it on and you're just in it. Um, of course there are there are differences between the different songs and there are some that I love more than others I guess but honestly I love them all so much um I would start with the first track 
um, because that is where the title comes from. And so it's the the album is called In the Wee Small Hours, but the title track uh, is slightly longer. It's In the Wee Small Hours of the Morning, um, which is now a famous song, but at the time it was a new song. Um, he was the first one to record it. And I think it's the only song in the album that was original at the, at the time, everything else was something that had been recorded by other artists or had been in a musical. Um, and so this song, I just absolutely love. It has this sort of descending harmony. Um, and it introduces all of the sort of major elements that make up the album. Um, the, to me, the most distinctive sound on this song and the and then the album as a whole is the celeste. Um, and celeste is, if anybody's listening and doesn't know what that is, it is like a tiny, it's kind of like what you want a toy piano to sound like, but a toy piano sounds like a toy. A celeste sounds like this perfectly twinkly little piano that you play these high notes and it just, it gives you sort of, uh, it can it can be Sinatra, but it could also be like Disney, or it could be used in so many different um, contexts. But it really just sets a mood which feels lullaby-ish, um, and it's th- it's throughout this album. There's a lot of celeste, and for me, that's that's the defining feature of this album on a sort of instrumentation basis. Um, and it particularly is uh, really an important sound for this song, which is all about lying awake at night and thinking about this girl that you can't have. And, you know, it doesn't have to be a girl, but, you know, I think anybody listening to this song can project their own experience onto it. Um, but it's it's one of the most evocative songs I've ever heard. Um, it really transports you to this place. Um, and especially that that feeling of lying in bed at night, um, which, f- you know, for the record, is how I became obsessed with this album, is I would play it late at night, lying in bed, thinking about the girl that I couldn't have. And it just, yeah, for me, it's just, this song is like a warm blanket especially the, like the first moment you put it on these, these really lush, but old fashioned strings come on. It's like such a warm sound. And then on top of the bed of strings, there's the twinkly celeste. Um, and then, and it's really short. Um, and I just love it. I, I always will. Where do we travel from in the wee small hours of the morning, which uh, track should we focus on next? Well, I, I also love the next track, which is um, Mood Indigo. And I think it's a Duke Ellington song. And this song, you know, is a famous song. It's been recorded by a lot of artists, but this is a particularly interesting rendition. And it is also, I think, such a perfect encapsulation of. Um, where he was at this point in his life, which was he was he was really down and out about his relationship with Ava Gardner, um, and in such a public way, you know, everybody. And what's interesting about 
this album, it was released in 1955. I believe they got married in 1951. Um, and they were still married, right? And he releases this album of heartbreak and rejection uh, in the middle of his marriage after his very public divorce, which is an interesting move. Um, I think, I think of blood on the tracks 20 years later with, <laughs> with Bob Dylan's. <laughs> right, right. Where he was, he yeah. was still, uh, he was still going through it. He was still working mm -hmm. it out. They were mm -hmm. on again, off again. Right. Right. Blood right. On the tracks. Exactly. It's kind of like that. So, and you know, there was so much coverage in gossip columns and such about Ava Gardner was off in Spain filming a movie and she met a bullfighter and all this kind of stuff. And then he, of course, was always having affairs which he seemed to not consider a piece of information that should ever affect anyone around him. He should always be able to do whatever he wants. But, but he was really quite depressed about his relationship with Ava Gardner and also up until this moment about his career. Um, everybody thinks of Sinatra as this sort of just boisterous, rat pack, Vegas, uh, swinger guy who was a womanizer and all that. And he certainly was. But um, in the early 50s, he was deeply depressed. He was threatening to kill himself all the time. Um, he was a total drunk. Uh, he lost his voice in the middle of a concert, probably from potentially for, because of his emotional state. He was, he was truly a mess. Um, and a divorced man in a time when that was a lot less acceptable. So, you know, mood indigo for me, the, the line, the opening is line opening line is you ain't been blue. No, no, no. You ain't been blue till you've had that mood indigo. And not only does it really encapsulate this particular flavor of sort of bluesy sentimental sadness, it's also such a perfect match for, I'm sure we'll talk about this later, but for the, you know, classic, um, iconic album cover of this album, which is filled with these different shades of blue. Um, and it shows a forlorn Sinatra, you know, looking off, looking, looking down in a way clearly lost in thought and, and feeling. Um, and, so this this is just one of those songs that um, everybody, not everybody, but many people know. But um, if you've never heard this version, I really recommend checking it out. Chatting with Jared Saltiel on Cover to Cover with Matt Tarka about Frank Sinatra's fifth studio record in the wee small hours. What's next after Mood Indigo? There are... Some of these, I just want to point out some of these song titles because I think they um, kind of help to bring the album to life. Just the just the titles. Um, the third track is called "Glad to Be Unhappy." The fourth track is "I Get Along Without You Very Well," which is uh, fully tongue in cheek. It's about how he's not getting along very well, um, and I think those songs kind of blur together for me, even though they're they're totally different because they they really conjure this mood, which is, it's one of those things where it's like, it's about the agony and the ecstasy of this kind of heartbreak where there's something so profound and beautiful about being so sad about another person. And 
there's and you know something about this album that i think is really interesting is the way that it conjures and captures um this mood um and these very real feelings which he certainly was feeling and was you know uh embodying but it also does it with a sense of humor and a sense of wit which is present in you know the even just in the song titles like i get along without you very well of course i do except and then and then the song lists like a bunch of different situations you know when i hear your name or when it rains or whatever all these things all these like hopeless romantic sentimental um situations um and so that wit is present in the lyrics of the songs it's present in the performance the vocal performance um and it's also present i think most interestingly in the arranging itself what nelson riddle does with the orchestra um there's so much and i think these two songs if i remember correctly um these two songs really uh kind of bring that to life um there's a lot of like call and response between the melody you know sinatra sings the melody and then there will be some sort of orchestral flourish like the strings or or flutes um will play some some sort of counter melody and it's very clear that nelson riddle is really incorporating the lyrics into his writing um, and thinking about what each line and what each moment is sort of saying and what the intent of the lyric is sort of asking for in the orchestration um, to, so that every moment is different from every other moment. And that's something that I think is really interesting about all of Sinatra's music. Um, there's this famous quote from Charlton Heston um, that every, which, you know, big asshole, just side note, uh, not a, not a Charlton Heston fan or anything, but I love this quote. Um, uh, he said, every Sinatra move, uh, sorry, every Sinatra song is like a four minute movie. And I really love that because, and I think it has something to do with what I'm, what I'm mentioning about the arranging is that like, it's like every moment of an, of an arrangement of a Sinatra song is precious. You have to accomplish something in that moment. You have to make it count and make it fit what's happening with his voice and what's happening with the lyrics. There's this really sort of rich interplay of all the different elements, which is something that is less uh, present in contemporary music. And I think particularly less present is that that sense of wit, you know, or that sense of kind of playful, you know, playing around with what can be communicated through words, but also through, you know, a counter melody or through a flourish of instrumentation. Um, so I'm kind of free associating, but th th that's something that uh, really stands out about this music that I thought I, I wanted to mention. We're talking about I Get Along With You Very Well and coupling that with Good To Be Unhappy. After I Get Along With You Very Well, we have a track called Deep in a Dream. Really fluttering, really soaring vocals from uh, the chairman of the board here. Is this a favorite track uh, here? Do you think this is a, kind of a, I don't know, a palate cleanser, you know, that kind of, you know, wants to, you know, just focus on, you know, just a 
completely different theme before going back to uh, to Ava Gardner, or do you think this one kind of meshes with the uh, the previous oh, couple of tracks? I think I think it all it all stays pretty consistent, um, but you know the imagery changes. I'm, I'm actually pulling up the lyrics because I so. You know, what's interesting about the way that the album is kind of organized and put together is that there are all these different ways to sort of pull you into the space that he's inhabiting. Um, you know, but, the, you know, the basic framework is I can't have you. I'm thinking about you. It feels so bad, but in a certain way, it feels so good. Um, kind of makes me think of that Lauren Hill song, When It Hurts So Bad. Why does it feel so good? Um, you know, this is this this album captures that mood in a particular way, and this song is one of the one of many songs on this album that's that has like a full blown fantasy. Um, in this one, it's like I'm sitting in a chair and I'm smoking this cigarette, and the smoke fills the room, and then suddenly, your you descend from the ceiling. This like vision um, in the smoke and I am str- so it's about being really just sort of sitting there minding your own business and then being completely swept up and overwhelmed by this feeling of loss and and longing and fantasy. And there's there are multi I can't remember exactly which songs off the top of my head do this, but um I think this one and then the following song I see your face before me and then later in the album dancing on the ceiling. Um all, all three of these songs play with a similar kind of imagery, which I think is so interesting because it's one of the flavors present on In the Wee Small Hours. Friends, we're talking with Jared Saltiel here on Cover to Cover with Matt Turk about In the Wee Small Hours by Frank Sinatra. Um, Jared, what other tracks would you like to talk about in great detail here? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of my favorites is Can't We Be Friends? which it sounds like like it sounds like a song that has existed in 15 different forms you know in the sense of there's got to be many songs um in pop music history with this title but this particular recording is really great and the arrangement particularly um one of the, one but like I said earlier one of the one of the problems with this album is the way the songs all blend together so sometimes I'm I think I'm talking about one song and then I become sort of uncertain if I even am thinking of the right one uh what I would say about this one though is I really love his vocal performance on this one um there's this line where he says I thought I'd found a gal I could trust what a bust this is how the story ends. And it's the way that his voice just kind of breaks in the middle of this line that's pretty unique for Sinatra because he's usually such a put together guy and he has this kind of deep resonant baritone and he has the he brought this sort of Italian operatic bel canto style of singing into the mainstream and into pop music. And he generally relies on that and he relies on it throughout this album, but there's this variety, which I think constitutes his particular um, tone and and sense of deep feeling, which um, 
I think in a lot of ways can be lost on a modern audience because people sort of just hear crooner and they hear it through a filter of sort of like cheesiness. Um, but if you kind of learn about his life and you sit with the music in a certain way and you try to imagine yourself in the cultural context, it is so sincere. Um, and I think this song really pulls that, or it really comes through in this song. And there's there's just a lot more variety to his his vocal in this song than he than he usually has. And sometimes he sometimes he's really cutting, um, and 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 cynical because this this album is despite being wildly sentimental, it's also wildly cynical. It sort of depends on the moment. It ebbs and flows. This song, I think, really pulls through the cynical qualities of being um, being, you know, of elevating someone on a pedestal and then watching them fall, you know, which is something that he was going through at the time. Um, and I just love the guitar on this song. I love I love everything about it, um, but particularly the vocal. We're talking with Jared Saltiel here on Cover to Cover with Matt Tarka about Frank Sinatra's fifth record for Capitol Records in the wee small hours. Um, Jared, I think uh, I'd like to close our conversation with a discussion about cover art. Um, so when you look at this album cover for this Frank Sinatra album, what kind of images are conjured up in your mind? Do you think... Do you think it's an accurate representation of what you're going to experience as a listener? What say you? Yeah. So one thing that I love about this cover is it's the, it's sort of uh, it's the first of many from Sinatra that follow this general mold where it's like, it's a painting of him. It has a very clear color palette, which seems to sort of evoke the quality of the music on the album. Um, he's looking very sad. He often has a cigarette um and in this case it's it's made up of i'm slightly colorblind so forgive me if i'm wrong but it's made up of of various shades of blue and sort of and then it sort of blends into some turquoise kind of green i believe <laughs> that's where i no that's, that's right that's, okay good yeah, yeah. <laughs> sometimes i'm shocked so there's that there's there's a bit of the the indigo uh which you know is explicitly referenced on the song mood indigo and then there's that brighter green and i feel like this sort of um i can't remember the term for it uh but the the gradient where it passes from one shade smoothly to the other shade i find so fascinating um and the way that the album kind of all it all exists in this one general mood but there are if you pick a certain point on on the record cover you will get a different shade of blue or green and that's kind of what it's like to put on a random track you'll get like a a different shade in each song and a slightly different take um slightly different emotion right but some songs are more sentimental some songs are more sad some songs are more cynical um but they all are in this palette and it's a very consistent and clear palette and this album is so important in history really in the way that it it created a, that kind of palette and so um in that sense i think this cover art is has this real depth to it um and then on a on a more sort of basic level it's just this great image of 
Sinatra, a man in a suit, wearing his sort of trademark fedora, holding a cigarette, looking down in a way, lost in thought. Um, and he's on a street and it's an empty street. There's street lights. We know it's nighttime. Uh, and you definitely know what you're getting. You're getting a sad man in the middle of the night, um, which for the record, I learned just about a half hour ago, this, the title track was written in the middle of the night. Um, and I, I think that's where they probably got the idea. Um, so I love this cover. It's great. Part of what's so interesting about it is what this album did for his image, both in terms of him as an individual, but also in terms of this relationship, because it was such a public relationship people it was people never had so many opinions about a relationship like they did about sinatra and ava gardner um and people also didn't think of him as a very serious person they thought of him as this sort of you know he was this is a terrible analogy in a certain sense but he was kind of like a justin bieber you know in the 40s in a way i mean it's not really comparable but in a way he was kind of like that sort of he was that heartthrob and here he is this kind of wizened and slightly grizzled and certainly more mature older guy uh mid i think approaching 40 um he's lived um and he's got some he's got some wrinkles on his face and mostly he has a furrowed brow from his experiences and i think that at the time when this album came out people took in this image people took in these songs and the the depth of of feeling contained within them and they saw a different person in Sinatra than they had seen before. And this album really created space for the remainder of his career to be the, the version of him that we know now, who is firmly an adult, right? And this is around the time that rock and roll was about to break through. Um, so this was really his transition to, you know, Sinatra the man, as opposed to Sinatra the, the boy wonder. Um, and I think that that's also, I mean, for me, it's just really hard to not focus on the sort of historical uh, moment or the context because I am so fascinated by him as a character. Um, and so I see, I see a lot in the cover, even as a hinge point of his image, um, which then remained with him f from that point onward. Jared Saltiel, thank you so much for being on cover to cover today. I've, Greatly appreciated learning so much more about Frank Sinatra from you. Thank you for introducing this record to anybody who is listening. And uh, thank you so much. It's been an honor. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's really fun. Obviously, I have a lot of stuff to say about Sinatra. I've been thinking about this since I was 12. Um, so it's, it is great for me to have an outlet to talk about it and great to meet you. And I am uh, hope that I get to... Um, get some uh, just a few people to check out something that they maybe would not have thought about be an honor all right thanks so much to all of you for taking some time to stop by the program today for all of you listeners out there thank you very much and please remember to hit that subscribe button on that device in which you listen to your favorite podcast whether that's on apple google play stitcher or maybe even amazon Take a moment to tell a friend or tell some of your family members about our show. Let us know how much you like the show by giving us a good rating. That will certainly help us appear higher in search results. And feel free to drop us a line at hello at covertocoverconversations.com.
Intro and outro music of our podcast is produced by Jarrett Nicolay at Mixtape Studios in Northern Virginia. We hope you discovered some new music, perhaps rekindled your love for an old forgotten song, and shared a good moment with us as we continue to sonically explore a world from cover to cover.